This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by... It's Mardi Gras time, boys. Excited. I thought we were doing breakfast challenge. We're gonna, we're gonna start the breakfast challenge next week. So okay. This is our last kind of like regular food, and now it's, you know, can we do breakfast. breakfast Mardi Gras food? Is that there is a lot of breakfast Mardi Gras food? Mar- Mardi Gras for me is kind of a late. Is it date called a Bloody Mary? Is that qualifies breakfast That's, Mardi Gras? It's well played, sir. What's your New Orleans go to? I love char-grilled oysters as much as anybody. Like Ooh, Dragos, like Dragos, New yeah. Orleans, yeah. Dragos, Acme's. There's just there is nothing better. Yeah, that's hard to beat. That's hard to beat. I'm I think a, I'm a big fan of shrimp and grits. I, whenever I get a chance to get shrimp and grits, that's a, that's a New Orleans favorite for me. Giacomo's yeah. up in uh, the Garden District has amazing shrimp and grits. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Coley, what, uh, you those, got one meal I mean, in New Orleans. One meal. What those are both good ones. It, it may be one of those two, but I'll tell you, part of the Brendan family, they have this restaurant, Redfish. It's in Ooh, the corner. Oh, I've been to Redfish. And they have all the standard fare. So yeah, Redfish go, is good. You can go get gumbo. You can get, you know, shrimp creole. You can get the bread is baked fresh in there. And so, it, you know, it comes with every meal. And it's it's hot hot bread with, you know, red beans and rice or something like to dip. With a, oh, my my mouth is watering literally thinking about it. It's not necessarily a good breakfast deal, but, you know, good lunch, good evening. And you can pop in, sit at the bar, and pop out right in the quarter. It's great. My, my daughter, who is a junior at Tulane University in New Orleans, called me last night just to let me know she was going underground for the next five days, and there would be no no sights, sounds, or trace of her existence, and that she will resurface next Wednesday after Fat Tuesday. She was, Carson, like, Carson, she was just letting me know. Carson did that when they rolled out the new menu at Olive Garden. This is true. This is true. <laughs> going underground, and that, folks. That I'll was see, five days, too. I'll see you on the other side. All right, let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, California is leading the way on property tax reform, but not in a way that will make operators happy. An initiative is on a November ballot that could significantly increase corporate property taxes, and it may be impossible to stop. We'll take a look at that. And as we know, the recycling industry is in big trouble. As cities have less flexibility on what to do with the waste, they have increasing flexibility on how to curb it in the first place, and targeting the restaurant industry is becoming their favorite tool. We'll discuss what's going on in that space and how operators should be prepared. And Philadelphia has followed some West Coast cities and essentially established a local Department of Labor to handle all manner of workplace issues usually handled at the federal level. We'll take a look at that trend line and why it matters. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Aligned Public Strategies partners, Franklin Coley and Carson Chandler. And Franklin, what would an election season be without a big expensive, hairy ballot initiative in the great People's Republic of California. It wouldn't be an election year, would it? It would not. It would not. So on the ballot in California this year is a ballot initiative that should get every business owner and commercial property owner's attention uh, if it hasn't already. And, you know... Can, can, Can I for a second just break in here and... Okay. Describe how when we were in the phone call and the words Prop 13 was thrown across the line that your left eye just started twitching uncontrollably and your legs started bouncing and you started shaking and you didn't know what to do with yourself. Can I just, can I clue our readers into that? 
Um, it was it was a trip down memory lane. Yeah. I was only 12 years old when the original Prop 13 was passed. I was not in, born in California, but I do remember a, a great deal about it because it was the original taxpayer revolt in the United States. It led to other such movements in Colorado and others. I've actually heard of it. It was it was it's, that big of a deal. It was the original one, and it was a time when California was losing a lot. Well, still is, but losing a lot of residents in neighboring states because of the tax situation. And so it was a revolt. And basically what it was was an initiative passed by the voters in 1978 that capped property taxes and the rates of increase of property taxes. And it treated commercial property and residential property equally. And it had all these limitations on how caps could be raised and if and how and yada, yada, yada. And so it, it, it essentially, in a, what, what it really does is it creates the tax rates from skyrocketing year to year and or, dampens them down. Yeah, or, or keeps them artificially low, which is what proponents of adjusting this nearly, what is it, 88, 98, 42-year-old law, they're saying, look, we've got, you know, residences flip every couple of years. You know, in 45 years, you can have a residence change hand three or four times. The property tax rates are adjusted, but businesses stay for a long time. The family restaurant's been there for 50 years, and they're paying a property tax based on 1965 rates. And so proponents are saying California is losing a lot of money because of these antiquated property tax rates. And so our friends in the left of center world, the teachers unions and the organized labor and many of the, the left of center advocacy groups are putting it, have successfully put a measure on the ballot, ironically also entitled Prop 13, that would basically create a split role in California. It would leave the caps in place on the residences and, and small business, but it would open up those caps on commercial property. And then every three years, they could be reassessed again. And the voters will set those three-year limits, but the legislature could come in and change that and even lower that, that they could be reassessed every year, like other types of property. And so- Well, and it's unclear, quote unquote, small businesses, you know- It says 50 employees or fewer, but what is that? Is that a franchise, franchise operation? Who knows? It's going to be a very expensive proposition in California, one way or the other. So the business community led by basically California Business Properties Association, Everybody. which is ICSC, International Council of Shopping Centers, is, is leading a coalition. Franklin, what did they say was the amount of money needed to be raised to defeat this thing at the ballot? Like 100 mil. $100 million. $100 million. $100 million. That's a quarter of what Bloomberg spent in the last two months. <laughs> I mean, $100 million is a... That's just an eye-popping amount of money to spend on one ballot initiative in one state. Yeah. That is unbelievable. Yeah. So uh, the business community is trying to rally the troops. A lot of the restaurant companies I've talked to and some other retail companies kind of think this is a fait accompli, that, that it's going to pass uh, and be approved by the voters. But um, companies need to really take a look at this split-roll tax initiative and really assess what they're potential property tax liability is going to be in California, and it's going to be epic. And they say it's going to put about $11 billion more in the California budget if passed. That's what proponents are saying, $11 billion. And where's those $11 billion going to go, Franklin? I'll tell you what they're going to go to. They're going to go to a lot of Gavin Newsom pet projects, my friend, right. is what's going to happen. A Newsom slush fund. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of politicians in California that would like to lay their hands on those dollar race, I can tell you that. So this is going to be a fight. This may be the fight of 
you know, 2020 in, in California here. So uh, this is going to be something that everyone internally needs to be alerting their C-suite that this is going on and starting to run the traps. And we're happy to provide background information for you to do that in an informed way. But uh, this is going to be a biggie. So, Franklin, let's talk a little trash, shall we? Well done, Joe. Thank Did you, you just come up with that off the top of your head? Just, I mean, you I've been thinking about that. it all night like two long. weeks ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had a little note. I had a little note. So, in one of our favorite uh, office publications, we saw an interesting uh, piece this week. And I'm going to read you the title and the first sentence. And it's kind of really all you need to know. Mm-hmm. Title, The Fraught Future of Recycling. Byline, The American Recycling Industry is in Crisis and Cities Are on the Front Lines. Boom. We got a problem. So we've talked about this before on this pod, that before China stopped taking our recycling products and our trash, essentially, that 70% of U.S. material was going to China. 70% was going to China. China cut it off. And so we've got all these cities trying to figure out how to manage through this crisis. And they've got antiquated recycling centers, our domestic recycling industry hasn't been anywhere near able to handle this flow. We've got cities just kind of throwing up their arms and putting stuff in the landfill. And at the same time, if cities can't handle the recycled content, what are they going to do, Franklin? What's going to be their, the city's next move after dealing with the recycling industry? Before I answer that, let me throw a little, another little nugget out from this Axios piece. I love Axios, too, because it breaks it down almost in, like, talking point fashion. But 60 cities, and I guess it doesn't give a time frame, but let's assume it's, like, the past year because that's when the China announcement and everything is. Right. 60 cities have shuttered their recycling programs. And then a whole host more have stopped like collecting certain items. Basically, they're only collecting the the few items that are still profitable to process through their facilities. We're screwed, man. And when I say we, I mean the retailers. Because to answer your question more specifically, these jurisdictions are going to go start pointing fingers at people. And there's there's really only kind of two people to point fingers at, the producers or the end-use retailers. That's it. Like, there's there's no one else. You know, they're not going to point fingers at consumers. They elect them. They're just so, going to say, if we can't handle the waste, they're just going to say, you can't, you got to stop using it. Yeah. They're just going to tell the, the restaurants and retailers, you got to stop using this stuff. Or they're going to do what some form, and we've talked about this before, of a bill that just popped up in Maine that is mandating that franchisors, really just targeting big chains, mandating that they pay for and figure out the recycling of materials. Now, Maine has a bunch of bans that are going into effect. But essentially, those few items that are not compostable that you're still using in your restaurant, your retail location, that are recyclable, you now are going to have to pay for the life cycle and the recycling of those items that the city or the state, they're not going to pay for it. The end user has to pay for it. Now, this bill is probably not going to go anywhere because there's all sorts of problems. But the point being is that's where the conversation is going, is retailers, we are going to end up continuing to get blamed for this. And it, at some point, I don't think that recycling is going to disappear. It's headed down a perilous path. Clearly, we got things to work out. I don't think it's going to disappear. It's more of a question of who's going to pay for it. And, and how how our supply chain is going to adjust to it? We, we've got Franklin. I think they're right now, as we sit here on you know last week of February, last few days of February, there are more pieces of legislation in state legislatures currently about packaging and restrictions on packaging yeah. and recyclable we and compostable than we have on wage and paid leave and scheduling probably combined all three. 
I would venture that there's... That's aggressive, but there's a I, lot of them. I would bet you that every state right now has some form of this stuff. Well, and the own. difference is these are all... They're kind of all in play. A lot of them are in play. They're under serious consideration, yeah. I guess, is another part of that. And so bad. The situation is so bad right now that you and I, we reported last week on this podcast about, lo and behold, legislation in, of all places, Congress. The first ever, as you pointed out, piece of legislation that would ban, piece of federal legislation that would ban certain types of single-use containers and yada, yada, yada. Probably not going to go anywhere, but it's an important marker. As we always talk about the life cycle of an issue, it's an mm-hmm. important marker, an important step along that path to wholesale solutions in this space. And to your point, it's, it's going to be restaurant industry and to a certain extent, the retail industry, they're going to be the point of spear on trying to defend this stuff. And you know what? We don't really have a strategy. We don't really have a national recycling pushback strategy on this stuff now. It's kind of ad hoc, state by state, city by city. Do we say this here? We say that yeah. there. I mean, and clearly, clearly be better positioned if we were going in with solutions, with a, with a, you know, an entree of solutions rather than waiting for us to get hammered with it, which is. And know, so as we all move to delivery, well. delivery platforms and to go and we become more and more reliant on packaging and all this kind of stuff, this issue has gone from, I don't want to say zero to, to 50. It's, it's, it's kind of been percolating out there for a while. It was hot and heavy about 10 years ago, kind of subsided. Man, it is everywhere right now, and, and mayors, especially local-level mayors, are going to be really looking to the restaurant industry to figure, help figure this thing out. Franklin, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania's in the news lately, and you know Philadelphia is a legendary, great boxing town, and uh, it looks like employers are getting pulled into the ring a little bit for a beatdown. What's going on up there? The latest beatdown, the latest of many beatdowns, is um, they're going to kind of formalize everything under a local Department of Labor. At least that's a game plan. So late last week, um, the city council passed an ordinance that essentially would create a permanent labor department at the local level that will enforce the city's labor laws. And as we know, Philadelphia has been very proactive in passing a bunch of mandates that exceed the the state standard. So, you know, we have these on the West Coast, notably in LA and Seattle and some other places, but I am unaware of one on the East Coast. So this would be the first one here, and this certainly I expect other cities would pick this up. You could argue that New York City has one under the Human Rights Commission, which does a lot of this type of stuff. Very notable for a very big city to focus on this and stand up essentially a mini labor department within the city. This isn't happening in a vacuum, right? We, we've talked for some time in this office, you know, going back, I'm talking five, maybe even 10 years, talking about how one of the goals, the big long-term strategic goals of the labor community, uh, especially as they were fighting uphill battles in either a a Republican-held Congress or Republican-held administration, that their strengths lay mostly at the local level, and they wanted to localize as much of the law and regulations, statutory language, at the local level that affects their community as possible, localized labor law, essentially. And so we've talked for ever about these wage theft boards that are set up in the wake of these high minimum wages, and you reference California, especially Los Angeles. This is just the latest move down the field in what has been a long-term goal for the labor community. Well, I think if you talk to employers, too, and um, you know the, the ones that have been through a federal or a state labor department audit, and you ask them how that experience was, they will tell you it was not pleasant, and it was probably very costly. And so now you just have another jurisdiction. You have a third jurisdiction now, and maybe even more if you want to count the courts and others. But 
you have another jurisdiction that you have to go defend your practices in. The point that the, the bill sponsors make is, you know, they say, look, in the Philadelphia metro area, there were 128,000 minimum wage violations, 105,000 overtime violations, and 83,000 off-the-clock violations in just a year's time. And so they're arguing that the current system's at the state, federal, and in the courts, they just can't keep up with this, particularly as the city passes their own rules and laws. So that's it. I mean, this is going to be a model. Now, I will say, this is going to be on the ballot for approval by voters on the November ballot. So it still has to be approved by voters. Essentially, it's a charter amendment. So, you know, there's still kind of a hurdle to be climbed here, but it's hard to imagine that it's not going to pass. But, we, you know, we'll see, and we'll see how they build this thing out and staff it, too. So we talked during Philadelphia's uh, municipal elections, I believe, middle to late last year. My memory's a little hazy. And by the way, this is on, I'm sorry, this is on the April 28th ballot. This is in the municipal ballot. Sorry, go ahead. So, but, but last year, we talked about you know, election outcomes and city council members and how the, the Workers' Party seemed to be making excellent gains in Philadelphia, working families party. party. Is this a result of that? Are are the two things connected? They're dotted lines across all this stuff, right? The working families party gaining traction, Philadelphia becoming a leader in, look, there's only two municipalities in the East Coast that have passed scheduling laws, Philly and New York City. So, you know, Philadelphia is establishing itself as a leader in this space and a whole host of items. And it's just another box check on a long laundry list of items in which the city is a leader. Never dull. Never dull in Philly. Never dull. And depending on how this goes, I think, you know, you're potentially going to see other cities following. Yeah, I could see the Baltimores and the DCs. And you you can easily see DC going down this path. You know, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe even a Boston, something like that. I mean, it's, it's, once it gets established on the East Coast, it'll spread. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory events this week. And as always, we start with wages. Franklin, pretty slow week in the wage world. Not a, not a whole lot. A lot of, lot of talk, not a whole lot of action. Yep, very true. Very true. My Joseph. home state of Maryland got in the mix. Maryland, my Maryland. Yep, Maryland did. How about them O's? I mean, I don't know if it's in the mix. Kind of a minor bill, but we'll mention it. So a couple Western counties basically are trying to exempt themselves out or delay the phase in of the $15 an hour minimum wage is going into effect in Maryland. I don't know how successful they'll be. Maybe you know off the top of your head how much clout these members have, but it's always tough. 0.0. Yeah, unless unless you're you know, the Speaker of the House or the Senate the President. The former or longtime speaker was from Western Maryland, which is unusual. Usually it's, you know, the suburban counties are Baltimore. So he maybe could have gotten a carve out for the two counties, but it's unlikely some backbencher will. So yeah. I think this is probably going nowhere. But it is part of this larger conversation around regional minimum wages. That's why it's important. Yeah, yeah. like we're having in Virginia and elsewhere. In uh, Vermont, uh, we thought we were heading for a, a showdown in the House, but they hit the pause button. Delayed, which means they don't have the votes. So. Who knows if this thing just never comes up or if they hold the vote to override the governor's veto on the minimum wage And just to get up to speed, the, the, the Senate already voted to override the governor's veto on the minimum wage bill. The House has been six, seven, eight votes short for a while, and they are not making progress in flipping those votes. Yeah. So they have held votes before where they did not have the votes and just lost. You know, oftentimes you just won't bring something up if you don't have the votes. So who knows what's going to happen here? And then in uh, the Buckeye State of Ohio, we've been following this uh, uh, minimum wage ballot initiative that's kind of gaining some steam out there to go to 13 bucks an hour. And uh, 
the big boys got involved this week, the AFL-CIO. Not terribly unsurprising, but notable nonetheless. SEIU has been pushing this thing, and now AFL-CIO is officially on board. Now, what that means is you know, this is an official <laughs> endorsement and involvement, so now they're going to have all their locals start collect petitions, and they have to get, you know, it's just under like half a million in half the counties, like 44 counties. So you definitely want all those locals out there gathering petitions because uh, it's a pretty steep hill to climb. In a semi-related note, uh, I saw an article uh, about a week ago that was forwarded to me by uh, one of our colleagues, and it was talking about how the labor unions in Ohio – give a significant majority of their political money to Republicans uh, in Ohio. And why would that be? Well, of course, Republicans have all the offices in Ohio and pretty strong majorities. But it is interesting, the AFL get CIO getting involved on this ballot initiative, and yet a bulk of the labor money is going to Republicans who are likely to oppose it. So it's just kind of interesting politics. Franklin, switching to uh, paid leave, a little bit of activity in Colorado. Yeah, so the state has approved these initiative for the November ballot, and they would mandate between 12 and 16 weeks of paid family leave. The state seems really certain they want to do paid family leave. They seem really uncertain. And, How? Uh, yeah, and they and it looks like no one wants to own this. When when people are putting stuff on the ballot, oftentimes that is an indication that they don't want to own it. They want to put it to the voters, and the voters can own it. And so, there's legislation still hanging around in the legislature that would allow the legislature to, and the governor essentially, to, to basically do this on their own. But it looks like they're going to maybe punt it to voters to make a decision. So, you know, they have struggled with this for at least two years now, trying to figure out how the mechanics of this are going to work. And they're not alone. Like states all over the country are trying to figure this out. So. But even the mechanics of the ballot are kind of interesting. There's two separate initiatives on paid leave that would both essentially set up the same benefit program, but one has a, an opt-out for local governments to, to opt out of the state program. If you're an average voter, I don't know how you're not going to be confused on that. If you're an average voter, you don't get that deep in the ballot. But yeah, if you do, if you happen to find your way into page How would they know the differences? Right. You know? So it's just it's kind of, kind of interesting. Switching to uh, Minnesota, Democrats in the House there are trying to move a paid leave bill. Trying to move a paid leave bill. Minnesota is the only, as we say often, divided legislature. In I the, still uh, find that fascinating. 50 states and only one has a split legislature. So if this thing makes it out, which is very far from clear that it's going to make it out, but it's going to be... A, Even out of the House. Yeah. And then, then it had to make it through the Republican Senate. So, But if compromised legislation is to emerge, it's probably going to be reliant on, heavily reliant on an employee tax. And so we've, we've, we've seen this scenario. It seems like it's Groundhog Day in, in St. Paul because in you know last two, three, four years in a row, the same scenario has happened. The House has moved minimum, uh, paid, paid lead legislation. The Senate has killed it. A lot of the media coverage up there uh, around this issue has said, you know, the kind of environment's different. And they've mentioned a lot of the things we've mentioned on this podcast. They've mentioned Trump being a leader in Republican proposals and how Republicans have really become a major player on this issue. And so there's some opportunity, if you will, um, that this may turn out differently, although I would still bet against it. Mm-hmm. And then Virginia, speaking of competing uh, leave proposals, while paid leave, paid family leave seems to be dead for the year, paid sick leave may be moving. Yeah, and this is, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, this is 
fairly modest. I mean, in Virginia, it'd be a shock to the system because there's been no requirement before, but this is pretty standard stuff. One hour for every 30, not to exceed 40 hours over the course of a year. So, you know, it's pretty standard stuff we're seeing around the country these days. And it's going through the process. I, you know, this is something that probably will make it through, but, um, you know, who it's hard to say. Virginia, it's hard to say in these short sessions where things just start getting totally crazy at the end, what is going to make it over the finish line and what will fall off to and, and go to next year. I do think that you're probably going to get this, whether it's this year or next year, you're going to have this mandate at some point in the future. Franklin, switching to labor policy, uh, the governor of New Jersey got in the mix this week. Yeah, he wants mandated sexual harassment and discrimination trainings. Here's the part that needs to be looked into, and I haven't really dug into it yet. There is, the governor is advocating for this, but but there is legislation that is online and posted and, and is going through the process that he's supporting. There's a requirement built in here that would require for quarterly reporting by companies on workplace harassment. And so haven't dug into that yet. It warrants some serious investigation because that, um, yeah, depending on what the, the requirements are, that could be a really big deal. Um, this is something that need to watch. This is in the backdrop of the uh, the Bloomberg incident in the Democratic debate. There's going to be some intensity and focus and discussion around sexual harassment, specifically around non-disclosure agreements, which Bloomberg got beat up over, but on the broader issue as well. Uh, and going across the country to Washington State, um, seems like we see these states where there's going to be all this stuff happening, all this, all this, all these competing, you know, initiatives and all this pent-up energy and then nothing happens. The two biggies in Washington State, so Washington State has a a short session this year, shorter than usual, 60-day session, not unlike Virginia. And uh, we have passed the midway point, the crossover deadline. So if if bills haven't made it from one chamber and the other, they're more or less dead. They can always, according to regular order, they can always, leadership can always do some crazy stuff at the end, but that's irregular and unlikely. So the things, to your point, Joe, that died, two biggies, scheduling and private right to action, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about more, is based off kind of a California model. It was a really big deal, created private right to action for labor violations. And essentially, they were, instead of relying on the labor department, they would rely on the trial bar. It's literally what, what they're saying to enforce labor laws and employment laws in the state. Those are two really big, big issues that both pretty much dead in the curb, certainly for this session. And we discussed it in a, a broader segment at the top of the show, but real quick for those that skipped the scorecard, Philadelphia basically setting up a local labor department. Yeah, I think it's it may not be the only one on the East Coast, but it's the only one really of note. It's a, it's, we've got a big city setting up a local labor department. We've seen a lot of this in the West Coast, so this could this could be the start of a trend, Mr. Kefauver. And um, following up on a on a theme from a few weeks ago, we talked about Chipotle settling with the uh, state of Massachusetts here in general over some uh, child labor violations. Wendy's this week made us a, a similar settlement. Uh, with the with the Mass Attorney General, I got to tell you, you know, these are two sophisticated companies with sophisticated lawyers and compliance departments and software. This must be some heck of a twisted labor regulations up there that keeps snagging these things because you know these companies are not intentionally skirting these laws. These are credible companies, so it, it must be pretty complicated, dense set of regulations well, in Massachusetts. One, one system having an issue is is kind of one thing, but now we have multiple systems with the exact same issue. So we have not dug into the exact nature of this this. 
violation. These are settlements, so a lot of that is not going to be public. But you need to be going within your company and flagging this. And trying to figure out Massachusetts, because this, this is obviously... This, this is just, obviously, this is not, this is an industry issue, not an individual brand yeah. issue now that we have multiple brands that are getting the exact same child so labor every brand, violation. Every brand ought to be looking closely There's at what's going on. There's a payroll system issue here that is common across multiple brands. Speaking of common across multiple brands, we're all involved in this scheduling stuff, and the industry had been part, the National Restaurant Association, the National Franchise, part of a lawsuit to try to um, curb this New York City scheduling law mandate however you want to say it, didn't work. Yeah, what was at issue here was, you remember Governor Cuomo's administration was held hearings, like wage boards, but not wage boards, focused on scheduling, and ultimately determined not to write rules, really, as they relate to scheduling. But IFA and the NRA and the State Restaurant Association were arguing that that authority existed with the state labor department and uh, was state government, and so it was a preempted area of law. The course disagreed. So that is very unfortunate, and that challenge is dead now, essentially. And lastly, Franklin, uh, in the delivery space, interesting set of issues up in Oregon. Yeah, so we had this in Louisiana. We've had it in a couple states where we've been expanding um, the options for delivery around alcohol. And essentially there, so there was legislation to allow drivers for third-party delivery companies to also essentially be bartenders and they could deliver alcohol. This was defeated in a House committee. And so you you won't essentially have food and alcohol being delivered. You still have alcohol delivery, though. Yeah, if so, I'm a beer store, you know, regular right. liquor store, I can deliver my product to your house. But, but if you, I'm... You Uri's, can't order the Chianti with Olive Garden exactly. spaghetti. Exactly. And so they were getting those... They were trying to come up with a system where those drivers could do the, the, the certification so they could deliver alcohol as part of food, and, and that, that legislation was shot down. And so there's, yeah. there's a lot of uh, back and forth. But we're going to see increasing increasing number of bills like that as the space kind of gets more defined. Yeah, the guardrails around th- third-party delivery and delivery in general, at the rules are all being written right now. Well, that's quick scorecard for the week. You know, we're at that place now, that inflection place, where a lot of the early starting sessions are getting ready to kind of have that sprint to the finish, and then the slow, slow-moving sessions are starting to warm up. So we're in kind of a little bit of a lull. Uh, so quick scorecard, but uh, we'll be back next week with more. So guys, another week, another pod, and to take us out, just a little recap of uh, the food fight that happened in uh, Las Vegas this weekend. Franklin, you were pretty, you were pretty energy- beat down. The, the Bloomberg, Bloomberg beat down. pie throwing contest. Yeah, so what? Uh, it was the most entertaining debate I can remember in some time. You had to go back to some of the repub throwdowns um, last go around, but man, it was enjoyable to watch. A lot of elbows being tossed. Mike, Mike didn't have a good night. You know, the, the challenge for him is with these other candidates, they've gotten popped here and there in little things. But Mike Bloomberg, first minute on stage, got hit with everything that everyone has owned him from day one. He literally just couldn't even it, respond. It was like National Geographic him. Lions uh, you know, attacking an elk or something in the in the wild. Wow, Carson. Yeah, that's aggressive. But yeah, yeah <laughs> it was wow. it was kind of like that. Yeah, so I, there, it'll be a while before we know what the impact of that was, if any. You know, so the the Super Tuesday polls, all the polls that have been taken were before the debate. So we may not actually have any polls until 
or mini polls until voters actually vote in Super Tuesday. May have a couple pop right before. Anyway, so it'll be interesting to see how that impacts. He is he has been rising like a meteor in a lot of the uh, the polls in Super well, Tuesday. Well, they wouldn't have attacked him unless he was real. You know, all, no, all I no saw doubt. was. That means they're scared to right. death. Their internal polling, their internal polling show. shows that he's he's got yeah. legs, and so yeah. that's why that's why the vitriol. Four hundred million dollars advertising yeah. will uh, will yeah. get you some legs. So it'd be interesting in Nevada. Um, the other thing of note for our listeners is the culinary union's a huge deal. It was a topic in the debate. They are not endorsing a candidate. They are behind the scenes poo-pooing Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan would essentially nullify the union's health care program, which is. Their big selling point. Yeah, national kind of model. So anyway, the Culinary Union has a lot of sway in Nevada, Democrat primary politics. Isn't that ironic, though, that they've been falling all over themselves, you know, bending and contorting themselves for these union endorsements? And and when the rubber hits the road, here's the biggest union, you know, one of the most important ones going, yeah, we're going to stay neutral. Yeah, and I think it was a tough decision for them. You know, I I think the um, they usually don't stay neutral. They usually endorse. And... They were, I think, afraid like many, and this presents the the challenge for the Bloomberg's, Biden's, Mayor Pete's of the world, is they were afraid to pick the wrong, this is my sense, they were afraid to pick the wrong moderate candidate. They wanted to support a moderate. They did not want to support Bernie Sanders, and but they did not want to pick the wrong one, and so they didn't endorse anybody. And that, I think, is how Bernie Sanders is going to win Nevada. Bernie Sanders right now has a pretty good path to going to, to convention with a lot of delegates. And part of the challenge is all these moderates are vying for the same endorsements, votes, and support. Well, speaking of endorsements, we will start next week a similar to our chicken challenge from a few months back. We're going to have a – there's so much breakfast. The breakfast wars are, are crazy. Everyone's in the breakfast space. It's it's mono-a-mono combat right now, and um, we are going to have our own breakfast yeah, challenge. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to do it a bracket or we want to do it kind of like a, you know, kind of like a, like a primary style well, deal. I can't, we're gonna we have can't, I can't have a two-month breakfast challenge. We, we gotta, no, we, we all gained about 10 pounds yeah, during the chicken we got to knock this out. This has got to be a so, one-day one deal. So we'll be on next week with the beginning of the Breakfast Challenge. See you next week.